Good morning, Bethel Church. I want to uh, ask you to uh, take out your bulletin, if you would, and we've got a few things I want to draw your attention to. Um, first off, uh, there's this uh, amber-colored insert in there. We have all been watching the news uh, the past uh, week or so about the effects of Hurricane Harvey, and uh, it's kind of tough to know what to do when you live in Fairbanks, Alaska, where uh, I guess on one hand, by God's grace, far removed from the situation, and yet uh, our hearts are not far removed from it, I hope. And uh, so I just wanted to give you some guidance this week on a few things you might do, uh, some things you might think about in terms of how you might be involved in some of what's going on there. And uh, so first of all, is just pray. And I don't mean that glibly, and I don't mean that as, well, but there's nothing else we can do, therefore I guess we'll pray. Uh, prayer is the powerful act that, and a privilege that God has given to his people, that we get to come to the throne of grace and entreat the Lord and beg of the Lord to act in healing and redemptive ways. And so we have that privilege and we need to take uh, that right and take it seriously and go to the Father and ask for his help in some of these crises. Um, secondly, uh, I know there's a lot of different fundraising going on for the relief aid that will need to happen and and that's something you should consider. Uh, maybe it's kind of hard to know where to contribute. And uh, there's lots and lots of them. I'll just direct you to one. Uh, Samaritan's Purse is a Christian organization. And we've given you a link to their website. They're set up for exactly this kind of thing. Uh, to be the, the love and compassion of Christ uh, in tragedies such as this. And uh, this is headed up by Franklin Graham this ministry, and you can read about that, and if you feel so led, maybe you would contribute uh, to uh, Samaritan's Purse and um, uh, help out that way. And then finally is consider going. Uh, You know, so often the church thinks about mission trips as going just to other cultures or just across the ocean or something like that, when there is very often ministry and missions work to do even domestically. And uh, I know we have had others from our fellowship that have gone to such disasters in the past, such as Hurricane Katrina. And I just would kind of plant the seed right now. Uh, Maybe God would stir in your heart that you would be a part of a team that might come from Bethel or, or from Fairbanks in general, or you might just join other teams that are going. But maybe just think about if that's something that God would um, have you do and, and see how that develops and, uh, and uh, matures in your own heart. So just three things. Uh, Certainly pray. Uh, Consider giving, and here's one agency you may give to, and then thirdly, consider going. And so if you would, um, uh, bow with me now, and uh, we will uh, pray for Hurricane Harvey and uh, its victims, and, uh, and we'll also pray for our time in the Word. So, Our Father, we thank you for an incredibly beautiful Uh, Fairbanks weekend. Uh, Yesterday was just gorgeous. And what a chance to see your power and your beauty and your care on display as we just look around us and we see the fireweed changing to uh, this deep, beautiful red and the amber on the trees and we see the white peaks in the far distant fog coming off of the waters and uh, it's just beautiful. So we thank you that we get to see these things that remind us of our good God. And I'm grateful for these visions, Lord, because we also see uh, terrible sights of flooding and disaster and death and fear. Uh, So we pray, Lord, for the 
uh, people in Texas and Houston and the surrounding communities affected by the hurricane, we pray, God, that they would not just look to insurance companies and, and look to be relieved from physical um, distress, but they would be confronted even with their own mortality and fragility, and they would look to their need to know God and have peace with him. Uh, we pray that the church would be mighty uh, at this time, that they would show their love and care, and that against such a dark backdrop, they would be a beautiful and compelling light for the love of our Savior. Uh, God, uh, work in our hearts that we might know what we should do uh, if you would have us give uh, to that relief effort or if you would even have us go and be a part of getting our hands dirty and loving uh, our, our fellow man. Uh, so direct us, Lord, we pray, and we ask for your guidance now in the scriptures as we turn our attention there. And uh, we ask that you, as always, Lord, would be our teacher through your spirit uh, so that we might know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two quick announcements before I dive into the message, too. Uh, I mentioned this last week, but college group is starting back up. Saw a ton of UAF students this morning. There's a bonfire at our house tonight, and there's this little card out at the welcome table if you didn't get that. Starts at 6 o'clock. And uh, come, bring friends. Uh, we'd love to meet you. We're just going to hang out and have a fun time. And then there's a second card that talks about where we'll be meeting uh, the subsequent weeks. Uh, again, Sunday's at 6 o'clock, so you can grab these at the... Uh, uh, welcome booth, so I'd ask you to do that. If you would take out your Bibles and turn uh, to Matthew 21, we are looking at the triumphal entry this morning. <clears throat> uh, throughout my faith journey, I would have to say uh, that the, the triumphal entry has always been kind of a puzzling event to me. Um, as, I, as I read the passage, I'm not always sure what I'm supposed to take from this. It's kind of um, been a little, a, a little odd to me at times. And, and here's just a few reasons why I feel that way. First of all, it seems strange to me that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. It's just not a very majestic animal, you know. It's not that impressive. You know, it's, it's like me showing up to church this morning on a Vespa, you know. If I rolled in on a Harley, well, that might be impressive, you know, that you might hear that and see that and go, wow, yeah, that pastor's got some swagger or whatever. I roll up on a Vespa and you're kind of like, hmm, that's not real impressive. It's really committed to good fuel economy and must have a warm coat. So it seems like a, seems like a strange ride uh, on which to show up uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, secondly, it, it almost looks like, if we're honest and if we look at the text, it almost seems like they stole the donkey. <laughs> right? They basically say, go and get this thing. If the owner asks you about it, why you're taking his donkey and the colt, then tell him the Lord needs it. Uh, I'm pretty sure if I went to my neighbor's house and grabbed uh, you know, his four-wheeler under the same pretenses, I'd probably go to jail, Right? Or at least you would see me on Facebook. Have you seen this guy, right? <laughs> um, I also think it's a little odd that when he kind of rides in, that people have such wild acclaim for him so immediately. He's on what seems to be a fairly lowly animal, and he's just riding into town. And people come out with praise and worship and adoration, and it's, 
it's a little puzzling, like, this is, seems a little too quick. I feel like I'm being set up for something, and in a sense, we are. And then, and then maybe fourthly, uh, it's strange to me, always strange to me, how quickly public opinion changes about him. At the beginning of the week, it's Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. And at the end of the week, it's crucify him. Same crowd, one week, totally different cries. And so it's always struck me as kind of an odd incident. It's like a dream sequence in a movie or something. It's, yeah, it's part of the story, but it, it seems somehow disjointed. And I think whenever we run into a passage like this, that for whatever reason isn't connecting with us, it's leaving us with some questions, or we're feeling like we're missing it or failing to grasp its significance, that there is a line of questioning that we should engage in for us uh, to, to, to help us get what uh, the purpose for which the incident is there. And I kind of want to just take us through some of those questions. This is a little bit of hermeneutics 101 here in the middle of the sermon. Uh, but one of the things that we need to do is we need to ask the question, uh, why did the author include this incident in the story? In other words, we need to assume that it has a purpose. Uh, the scriptures didn't just come together willy-nilly. You know, the authors really structured their books carefully, and, and everything that's in there is there for a reason. So we need to assume there's a purpose and then look for that purpose. And one of the ways we do that is asking this question right here. What would be lost or unknown about our faith or about our Lord or about this story if we didn't have this particular piece? You see, the scriptures are one story. It tells one story of Jesus who comes to die sacrificially to redeem a lost and rebellious people and to reconcile them to God. That is the story of the scriptures. It's not a collection of a bunch of stories. It's a story. And everything that's in it participates or or, or contributes to that story. So we need to look at it and say, well, why is this piece here? And what wouldn't I know about the broader story if I didn't have this incident? Okay? And And then finally, how does it contribute to the book as a whole, to our faith as a whole, or to the scriptures as a whole? And actually, those are really all the same question. I'm just looking at it from a few different angles, right? But we need to assume that it's there for a purpose and then kind of try to coax out of the incident, why? Why is it there? And I think when we ask some of these questions, particularly about the triumphal entry, we are confronted with this. We are confronted with Christ as king, not just a personal savior, but Christ as king of all the King of kings. Yes, he is a personal Savior, but he is God most high, and he is the King. We are meant to be confronted with his sovereignty over all of the earth and also over our personal lives. And so in this passage, I think we see his kingship, that it was prophesied. It wasn't something he just described to himself, but it was foretold. It's something that he claims of himself, his kingship. Uh, it's something... Uh, where we see how he has fulfilled all of the requisite requirements. And as the sovereign king, we see that he has authority over our lives. It's not an abstract kingdom. It's a kingdom with a rule and a power and a sovereignty over our lives. And so I think, again, it all confronts us 
was sort of the personal question, do we just want a personal savior or do we want a king? Do we want one who has a rightful claim and authority over our lives? Do we just want someone who can forgive sin and then just leave us alone? Or do we want to enter into the life of God and his kingdom and his rule and his supremacy in our life? Um, I think if, if we're honest here, we know that everybody wants a savior of some kind. But it seems to me that very few people want a king whose sovereignty extends over the whole of their lives. And the crowd that we encounter here in this story, uh, I think that's what's exposed in them. So look with me in Matthew 21.1. As they approached Jerusalem <coughs> and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, I want to kind of pull up our map. We've been looking at this the last couple of weeks. Uh, We've already talked about how Jesus left uh, sort of the northern region there of Capernaum and Galilee, and he ascended the mount, uh, uh, well, he ascended either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon, whichever one on which the uh, transfiguration occurred. And then he sets his face to the south to head to Jerusalem. And he is on this disciplined and strategic and purposeful errand of giving his life as a sacrifice, uh, knowing full well what is coming. He travels down the Jordan Valley here. We saw that he crossed over the Jordan River to the other side, to the region of Herod Antipas, a politically charged region where he was challenged with some tough questions about marriage and divorce. And then he came uh, to Jericho and began the journey up to Jerusalem. And that green mark there kind of shows his path up to Jerusalem. And as you get very close to Jerusalem, again, you may have to squint from where you are. Uh, But you can see there is the city of Bethany and Bethphage just right there adjacent to it. They're about two miles um, outside of Jerusalem. Uh, I think last week I said it was about a 20-mile journey uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's actually more like 17, and there's just about two miles from Bethphage to Jerusalem. And so that's kind of where he is at, and when he gives the instruction to his disciples, just two miles outside of town, go and retrieve this donkey. Uh, or this cult. And the reason I bring that, I kind of bring it up and show that to you is this. What we're seeing here is that Jesus claims a sovereign status. He claims royalty of himself. And this is a very overt thing that he is doing here. The manner of his entrance into Jerusalem is purposefully carried out in an overt way to claim something of himself. Uh, this is not the point in a 17-mile journey where you go, you know, I'm a little tired. Why don't you get me a colt or something like that? You know, it's downhill from here into Jerusalem. You're, on, you're just going to go down one little valley and then to the Mount of Olives and then down across the Kidron. It's pretty much downhill from here. And so this isn't by matter of Jesus being fatigued. It's not accidental. It's not like he's been on this colt the whole time. He is making a gesture, an overt claim, by riding this particular animal into the city. He is claiming something that is of a messianic statement. 
And it comes from a particular prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9. And it's quoted for us, but here it is in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I love what William Barclay has written about this particular incident. He says this, Before the hatred of men engulfed him, once again he confronted them with love's invitation. And that is his posture, that is his statement in this gentle ride into down. He is overtly fulfilling messianic prophecy, but the manner of his arrival is a loving and gentle invitation, drawing people to himself. Secondly, we see here that the cult actually symbolizes peace and royalty. Um, As I said earlier, this is a little bit of a disconnect for me because I don't think about a donkey as a majestic animal, you know. Uh, If you go to the fairgrounds here in Fairbanks and you look for the donkey, the donkey, this poor beast of burden is, you know, tied up to a pole and walking in a circle with kids riding on him all day long. You don't look at that and go, wow, what a ride, you know. Uh, it's the real horses are over here in the arena performing great feats, right, and running around and strutting their stuff, and you think, now that's impressive. But we don't think about the donkey as really as a, an impressive animal. Um, that's kind of how it is in our culture. But in the Palestinian culture, it, it was a majestic animal. It was an animal that, uh, in, in times of war, kings would ride a, you know, a horse or a war horse, but in times of peace, they would ride on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it was sort of this uh, peaceful, gentle uh, posture that they would be demonstrating there. And so as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he shows that he's not coming in as a threatening, conquering, militant king, but a king of love and of peace and of gentleness and humility, but a king nonetheless. Um, And so again, this entrance is a deliberate claim to be seen as the king according sort of to the customary practices of the day. And then thirdly here, even the manner of retrieving the cult actually uh, makes a statement to us. Again, he basically commandeers the thing, right? And we know in our culture, you know, a police officer could come to you and say, hey, listen, uh, I need your car. I'm commandeering it. And turn it over, and we'd probably say, okay. Uh, If your 15-year-old does the same thing, dad, I need the car. Oh, wait a minute. Now, let's talk about this, right? You don't quite have that right yet. Uh, and, and so we know, even in our culture, there are those who have the right and the authority to, um, to take something uh, that belongs to us for a particular task. And, and it was true here as well. He, he kind of commandeers this. The Lord needs it. And in this culture, this was a, a practice or a custom known as Ungaria, where a political uh, figure or a religious figure who was in great need could sort of command the use of an animal such as this. So even in the way that he uh, makes use of the animal is an authoritative kind of a statement, a kingly kind of a statement. And so what I want you to see is that everything about Jesus' approach to Jerusalem here is 
conspicuous and overt and demonstrative and a way of saying, I am the Lord's anointed, the king that you have been waiting for, and I am here. And I come not in threat, but in peace and humility and with gentle invitation. Next we see here, (coughs) oh, sorry, I didn't get that slide up in time, sorry. Jerusalem initially receives her king. We see this wild acclaim. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, these particular statements here, what I, what I have written for you is that they pick up the messianic psalm. In other words, these aren't just statements that they kind of plucked out of thin air or just decided to stay or to sing at this particular moment, but actually what they're doing here is they are picking up from the messianic psalms, uh, the psalms, the Hallel psalms, uh, where we find in our, in our Bible, Psalm 113 to 118. And these were psalms that were commonly sung at the time of coronation of a new king. So when David would have been anointed, or Solomon, or, or one of the kings of old had been anointed over the city, the people would come and they would sing these psalms and recognize God's hand in the placement of this figure. Uh, we have hail to the chief. Uh, they had these halals, these royal psalms of praising God for the placement of of his leader. And that was before Israel's exile. But when they went into exile and then they came back into the land, they didn't have a king any longer. And so these psalms, these royal psalms, kind of took up sort of a futuristic, hopeful look that God would provide his Messiah, his king, his ruler in due time. So as Jesus emerges on this cult and he comes into the city, the people are now picking up the royal psalms and declaring their statements of Jesus. So these are not just randomly written things, but they come out of Israel's tradition. And this is just a little bit of an interesting aside. Um, In the Gospel of Luke, we find the triumphal entry as well. And we find this incident, and we find these psalms that are being sung there. Uh, Luke is a physician, and he is committed to great detail in his gospel. And uh, as you might expect or hope that your physician would be attentive to detail, uh, Luke is. And as he uh, records this incident, he actually shows that they didn't just sing the psalm as it was, but in fact they changed a word within the psalm. Instead of just saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord as it's written, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he identifies that detail. It's fascinating to me that Matthew doesn't grasp that, especially when the whole theme of the book, right, is King Jesus. But Matthew doesn't grab that detail. I don't know why. I'd like to ask him about that sometime. But just the reference to the Messianic Psalm, to these royal psalms, really is, I think, probably point enough for him. 
And so not only does Jesus make it clear who he is claiming to be, but the crowd itself makes it clear who they believe him to be. He is King Jesus. And they throw their cloaks down on the road and palm branches. And again, this is a a way of recognizing his royalty and symbolizing their uh, submission and their allegiance to him. In other words, this is not just a good teacher, not just a healer, not just a nice guy, not someone who's just coming into town on a nice ride. They are showing their understanding or what they think to be uh, his kingship and that they are submitting themselves to it, at least for a time. And they cry out the word Hosanna, which means save, or God save us, redeem us. And so for a moment in the story here, everything looks pretty fantastic, doesn't it? It looks like the public is going to receive their king. Jesus is going to usher in salvation, and all will live happily ever after. But it's not a Disney story, right? And this isn't the simple salvation that the Lord came to bring. The people absolutely want Messiah, and they do want to be saved. But I think as we'll see, they only want to be saved from some things. And they only want him to rule in some ways. It seems that they're looking for a savior, but they're not really looking for a king. And I think that's part of what this incident confronts us with. Israel wanted to be delivered from Roman oppression. They wanted a savior from that. Uh, They wanted nationally to be recognized again. They wanted to be returned to a position of pride and status. They didn't want to be improperly taxed anymore. Uh, We might as well call them Americans here, right? Well, the things they want are the same kinds of things we would say we all want. It seems that they wanted the deliverance of Christ, but they did not want the rule of Christ in their daily lives. Uh, Look at verse 10 with me. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And so what we see here is that Jesus now confronts the people's sin. He gets right up in their face, right up in their business, literally, and he confronts it. We also would, uh, I'll just make this quick note, I'm not going to unpack this, but this is likely the second cleansing of the temple. Uh, Sometimes we see these in different places in his ministry. I believe it's because it happened twice. And what was going on here is that simply convenience in the temple had really led to compromise and to sin and to greed and abuse. Uh, When he entered the temple, he saw this buying and selling and this exchanging here. Uh, This would have taken place in the court of the Gentiles. And basically what was happening is those who were coming to the temple for worship would bring an offering with them. They would bring a sacrifice. And for those who could afford it, they would bring a goat or a ram, and that would be what they offered. 
Uh, but if you were coming from a different region, if you were a foreigner, you might not be able to bring a sacrifice that far away. So you would have to purchase one or find one that could, you could offer when you arrived in Jerusalem. Also, if you were poor, uh, the Lord made allowances that you could present a smaller sacrifice. Uh, you, could, you could supply uh, two doves. And we actually see Mary and Joseph, if you remember the story, when they come to the temple with Jesus to bring their sacrifice, one of the reasons we know they were poor is they brought the sacrifice of two doves. And so that was, that was the uh, sacrifice of the poor. And so what's, being, what's happening here is that these sacrifices are conveniently being made available, you know, like a vending machine at church or something. They're being made available, but at exorbitant prices. And there are exchange rates being applied and service fees being applied. Imagine if we told you this morning, we're really glad that you have come to worship at Bethel in song and in interaction with one another and in service and in bringing your offerings. One little hitch though, we only accept Bethel currency. So we're going to need you to go through one of the machines out in the lobby and exchange whatever it is that you've brought for our currency here. And oh yeah, there's a small $30 service fee for that exchange. Wouldn't that turn you off? We had an incident a few years ago. Last, last week I talked about this great uh, service that we had at a restaurant here in town, right? Well, uh, a little while ago, uh, we, had a, we were eating at, I'll just say it, we were at Denny's. We were at Denny's because... We should have known better. My wife tells me, what were you expecting? We were at Denny's. It was Tuesday night. Kids eat free on Tuesday. Did you know that? Don't fall for it. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's a trap. Me, General Akbar here. Excuse me, Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. And uh, we went there. And, hey, kids eat free. You know, how bad, how bad could this be? We were there for hours. We were forgotten. Our meal arrived in shifts, like one at a time, with 20-minute intervals in between. You know, one person's done, one person hasn't even seen their food yet. It was kind of absurd. When we got to the end of the whole thing, and I'm not getting into all the details, I went up to pay, and they said, oh, I'm sorry, our, our debit machine is out. Oh, uh, but it's okay, we have an ATM machine here that's working. Oh, so I you know, use my debit card to get cash now so that I can pay $4 charge. I thought, oh, man. So that was my tip that day. Uh, well, it's in the machine. <laughs> uh, that's where it is. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that didn't really uh, fit here in the message. I don't know. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that was happening in the temple, though. <laughs> Welcome to worship going to cost you 10 bucks to give your offering and jesus walks in and he sees this and he's appalled right he's appalled this is a circus this is a zoo this is a charade you've turned worship into commerce this is not what my house is for this is where sinful people come to find peace and relationship with god most high this is where they come and ascribe the majesty and glory that he is worth this is where they come and get their hearts right with God. And you're taking financial advantage of it. He was appalled. People were gouging people who had come to worship. And in fact, the people that were affected most were the foreigners and the poor. 
You want to talk about touching the soft spot of Jesus' heart. Don't mess with those folks. Jesus was outraged, and we see his righteous indignation as he ransacks the temple in the way that they were participating in this. And it seems to me that it's this sharp correction and the events that really followed here that turned public opinion against Jesus. And so once again, I think the people expected them to save them from some things. They didn't expect his authoritative rule in their lives, especially in those areas where they were being disobedient. It seems that they wanted a Messiah who would sort of just come and bring the goodies. You know, they wanted a President Santa Claus is what they wanted. And who they were getting was the Lord of all. And they would be confronted with that. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. I love this reply from Jesus. Yes. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and of infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And what we see here from this point on in the next, and, and, and throughout the week, we see Jerusalem beginning to reject her king. And again, overall, I think this passage confronts us with what is a very prevalent human problem. Which is that all of us want a savior, but very few want a king. We want to be rescued from some things, you know, hopelessness and despair. We want to be rescued from sin. We want that forgiven. We want to be delivered from addictions or from habits. We want to be saved from loneliness or a bad marriage or a job situation, or infertility. We want to be delivered from our negative financial situation. There's any number of things that we want to be delivered from, but many people don't want discipleship at all. And I think this incident confronts us with the reality that a proper understanding of Jesus means that he will be both Savior and Lord. That he will, yes, redeem us from our sins, but he is the King of Kings. That he will redeem us from sin, but he means for us to live under his rule. And that's a good thing. Uh, I love what C.H. Spurgeon has said. Men will allow Jesus to be everywhere, but on his throne. Um, And I have a quote here that actually I found a few years ago in uh, a book written by Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors. The title of the book is The Great Omission. And get this, Dallas Willard is quoting A.W. Tozer, so you can imagine my giddy delight, you know. (laughs) Wow, this is the best. But he says this. Years ago, A.W. Tozer expressed his feeling that a notable heresy has come into being throughout the evangelical church. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior 
and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. This heresy has created the impression that it is quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. What an image. One, in effect, says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven. Dallas Willard goes on in his book to commend to us avid discipleship, learning to be apprentices of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God in the here and now. Yes, he is our Savior. He is to be our Lord. And I think that is exactly what the triumphal entry confronts us with. It will not allow us to be neutral about Jesus or just take his Savior goodies. It shows us that he has the sovereign right and claim over all of our lives. And if we are honest with ourselves, if he can be trusted as our Savior, then certainly he can be trusted as our Lord. Let's close on that. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we see the overt claims of Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem, showing in a gentle and humble posture, I am the Messiah who has to come, the one who would redeem Israel and redeem all who would come to him in faith and repentance. God, may we move beyond just faith and repentance and may we move on to sincere discipleship. Knowing that our Savior, Jesus, is not just one who died on a cross, but one who rose from the grave. He is the author of life. He is the one who made us and knows what we were made for. May we learn of him and be his apprentices and study his life and emulate his life that we might enjoy life that is truly life. We know, as your word says, that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but you come, Lord Jesus, you have come that we might have life and have it abundantly. May we trust you as Savior and trust you as our Lord. So guide us this day into how we need to obey and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.